Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Nita Strauss, who is a guitar player, songwriter, and business owner who is currently the touring guitarist for Alice Cooper. Throughout her career, she's played a part in some incredible things, such as her own solo records, launching her own rock guitar fundamentals course, working with the WWE, working with Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons arena football team, LA kiss and many, many other things outside of music. Nita has a huge passion for fitness, which is manifested through her fitness challenge body shred, which just completed its fourth round with over 600 participants. I introduce you Nita Strauss. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me on. I'm excited. Likewise. Good to finally have you on. I know. It's been a process. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, everyone that comes on is a very busy person. So I don't ever take anything like that personally. You know, like with Nail the Mix, uh, some of the people that I've booked have taken me five years. Oh, wow. Or something. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I don't take anything like that. Personally. Okay. Then I don't feel so bad about my like two, three months. <laughs> yeah. 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 Don't feel bad. I mean, you've got a lot going on, you know, surprisingly for somebody who's technically not working right now. Yeah. It's been a really busy time. I think people are having either a really busy time or a really slow time during this last year. And I think it's kind of all been what you make of it. And, and for me, thankfully I've been able to stay really busy. You say technically not working, but it does seem like you've been working quite a bit. <laughs> yes. So do you just mean technically because you haven't been touring? Well, yeah, technically, I guess musicians, we all think of our job as being playing, going out and playing concerts and all the other stuff is like the minutiae of being a professional musician. And I feel like this last year has given us all, all of us touring musicians, an opportunity to really step back and example all the stuff that we thought was the fringe of what we do and sort of make it the forefront of what we do, if that makes sense. Yeah, I almost feel like the definition of what it means to be a professional musician has changed. And I've said this before, but I think that like five years ago or five to seven years ago, the definition changed from just being a player to also having some recording skills, not like necessarily professional level recording skills, but some and I think that that definition has shifted again to now it involves having some ability to do video stuff, streaming kind of stuff. Obviously not like Christopher Nolan level <laughs> video stuff, but still like it, I think the definition of being a professional musician has expanded from just being a musician who can record to now someone who can film and stream as well. And who has some level of entrepreneurial spirit and can say, yeah. hey, like, this is what I do. I'm great at this aspect of my life. How can I take this and be better at it? So there are people that are really good at playing guitar and are also really good at social media, you know, or there are people that are really great at playing guitar and are also great educators that are getting into teaching platforms and podcasting and this kind of stuff. And, you know, People like me that are like, okay, at playing guitar, but also good at like sort of all the other stuff that, you know, between the fitness stuff and the teaching stuff and uh, clinics and masterclasses, like I sort of cast a really wide net and you just have to figure out what aspect of what you do is something that you can take and run with it in another direction. So you're not completely out of luck when, I don't know, a pandemic happens and the world shuts down and you can't play shows for a year and a half. Yeah. When 
the universe decides to kick us all in the teeth, basically. <laughs> exactly. Have you considered yourself an entrepreneur, like always? Is that part of how you've defined yourself? Not until recently, no. As a younger guitar player, I was definitely all starry-eyed focused on touring. And all I wanted to do was be a professional working guitar player and get out there on the road and play guitar in front of anybody that would have me. I didn't care what style of music it was. I didn't care who I was playing with. I didn't care if I was playing to 50 people or 5,000 people or 100,000 people. I just wanted to get out there and play guitar. And the longer I worked in this industry, I started touring. I did my first national tour at 15. And I'm 34 now, so I have a lot of years of touring under my belt. And the yeah. longer I did it, the more I realized that it's really not enough just to be a great guitar player in this day and age. You have to have something that sets you apart from everybody else. And you have to sort of cultivate that, whatever it is. And that's when I sort of started getting more into the entrepreneurial side of everything and saying, how can I not only develop my skills as a musician, which obviously is still first and foremost, but how can I develop the brand of this guitar player, the brand of Nita, the guitar player, and sort of just build on that and and have fun with it too and you know make it something cool and not just like hey how can I how can I make money at music but how can I build something really really cool something lasting something that makes an impact for people and that's been my focus my manager Josh and I uh who's also my boyfriend you know we have already sort of been on that path you know we've we've sort of the last few years really been thinking about what I'm going to do when I'm not full time on the road anymore because realistically, like I've been touring a long time. I do want to take some time off sometime in the near future and start, you know, start a family and not stop playing music, but maybe stop touring 10 months out of the year. So mm -hmm. we've already been sort of on that track. I actually filmed all the content for my online course, Rock Guitar Fundamentals, a year before the pandemic. Like we were already sort of on this track, ready to go. And when the pandemic hit, we just rushed it out. Like it, it was, it was all filmed, but it wasn't edited. And I just thought, okay, well let's, let's do it now. And we sort of just rushed the things that we were working on to market, you know, for lack of a better term. Um, so we've, we've kind of been on this, this track for a while doing the fitness stuff and doing the lessons and doing, you know, signature products with different companies and merch and all that kind of stuff. It's been a slow process rather than a, a panic mode in 2020. You know, I can really relate to that. Uh, the uh, with what we we're doing at URM, uh, the pandemic really just put a lot of things that we already did in overdrive. Yeah, so just in a lot of ways. Yeah, but we were already suited for it because of everything that we were doing ahead of time. And I felt real bad for people who waited until the pandemic to start thinking about these other things. I, I think. You need to be thinking about these other things while times are good Absolutely. so that when times are bad, you're ready for them. You don't, this isn't the shit to start thinking about when the world is ending. <laughs> you know, one thing that I think is interesting is you're talking about finding these other things or defining the Nita brand as something fun and important. A lot of musicians get weird about that sort of thing. And I think they shouldn't, but it's because they see a lot of the NAM types, you know, the professional NAMsters who overthink the branding thing or do it the wrong way. But it's so important because 
if you don't focus on that to some degree, how is anyone even going to notice you in the first place? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a big difference between being an influencer who's just an influencer and being a serious musician who's also an influencer, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like uh, I've, I've been sort of lumped into this influencer category sometimes. And I get it because I do a lot of brand partnerships. I do have a good social media presence, like this kind of stuff. But first and foremost, fundamentally, I'm a guitar player. I go on tour all year long when things are good. I'm out there doing clinics. I'm recording solo music. I'm guesting on other people's records. You know, I'm touring with a super high profile artist. So if I was just doing the Instagram stuff and not doing all those other things, I could see being in that category. But I think it's important to make that distinction of like who is being a musician first and following your craft first and then adding all the other things just to build up that craft. Because at the end of the day, the Instagram posts and the photo shoots and, you know, the brand partnerships and whatnot, it's all a vehicle to drive, you know, different eyeballs to the most important thing, which is the music and the shows. And hopefully somebody will see this Instagram post and go, man, I want to listen to her music and they'll buy a record or come to a concert or you know, check out something, something else that I'm doing. So it's, it's just, it's all just a vehicle and to compete with this constant barrage that people are getting from social media. I think it's important to be at least a little bit knowledgeable about it. Barrage is a very good word (laughs) to use. It is. It is a relentless, relentless and never ending barrage. Yeah. I think you can, you can keep up with the times or you can get left behind with it. That's the bottom line. And it kind of sucks like, you know, because all any of us really want to do is not up to us. It sucks, but it's not up to us. We didn't, we didn't choose the rules of the universe basically. The game is happening. The game is being played. You can play the game or you can not play the game. And the people that are, unfortunately, the people that are playing the game and, and doing it well and doing it authentically, you know, is being authentic and being true to who you are is a big part of it as well. But there's a way to to integrate all of these, you know, sort of more entrepreneurial businessy things into your authentic guitar playing shred nerd self, if that makes sense. <laughs> So URM, we do our annual event, the summit, and I had Blasco come talk at it. For people that don't know, Blasco plays bass for Ozzy and he manages Zach Wild. And uh, he came to talk to a group of people, uh, like our VIP ticket holders at a lunch. And he got asked a lot of the, a lot of similar kinds of questions. Like I play guitar, but I want to, I also want to have like a coffee line and a guitar line and an amp line, you know, like uh, how do I get to what Zach's doing? And his answer was like, well, first of all, Zach mastered guitar Yeah. Like before, <laughs> before anything else, Zach mastered guitar. Then he mastered being a rock star. Then all that other stuff started to happen because it was a natural progression. Now I'm not saying that you need to be in the Aussie band or whatever to start going in entrepreneurial directions or seeing what else you can do. But point being that much to uh, back up what you said about the priority being the music is that in order for this to really work long-term um, the brand building thing, it's gotta be, backed by something real. There's got to be some substance there. Zach shit works because he's a guitar God. Yes. Straight up. That's <laughs> otherwise it wouldn't work. Yeah. We've all seen guitar players 
try to launch these things who aren't too wonderful. They don't have the musical, I don't want to say pedigree, because I don't think you need to be in a band like Aussies, but like they don't have the musical oomph to back up. Yeah, to back it up. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm always reminded of this story. I can't remember her name, but there was an influencer with a a couple million followers on Instagram who decided to start a t-shirt line and uh, she had to sell something like a minimum of 24 shirts to make the minimum print order. And she sold like eight, you know, like, so this is, Ouch. this is an example of somebody who's doing, who's not doing it right, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So whoever it is, whatever it is, Josh uses an example talking about me all the time where he says, I'm her manager, but I feel sometimes like a lawyer where like, if I'm talking to these companies about why you should make a Anita signature guitar or pedal or whatever it is. Uh, I have to present a case. I have to present a good case for them to say, yes, this makes sense. And if she didn't already do all the legwork, then there would be no case and it wouldn't work. You know, you take even some of these, these YouTuber guitar players that get a lot of crap for just sort of being on YouTube and sitting in the, in the room and playing and not going out and touring as much. They're fantastic players. It wouldn't work. The whole YouTube thing wouldn't work if they weren't good guitar players first, so uh, I think that a lot of these armchair quarterbacks back there talking shit on how everybody else makes their living maybe can just take a chill pill and focus on getting themselves better and getting their own entrepreneurial spirit sorting out, sorted out rather than critiquing other people's. Completely agree. I will say that I don't know that it will ever fully replace, you know, sort of like the prestige of touring a lot and playing a lot of shows per year, because I think at the end of the day, brands all still need that real world uh, endorsement of the artist, you know, and not so much endorsement in the technical sense, but the, they need to have artists out there playing the shit on stage, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like, and I don't know that it will ever fully take the place, but it has definitely been a huge, huge shift towards um, content creation rather than, oh, you know, she's, this person's got a marshal on stage in front of 500 people a night. And then this person's got a marshal in their Instagram post in front of 500,000 people on Instagram. So it's like, it is, it's a tough, it's a tough line. I I would imagine for companies to draw. It is because also you can look at the two numbers and they look obviously very different, but at the same time, just because one audience is bigger, doesn't mean that that audience is better for the purposes of the brand. Absolutely not. That's where actually, I think a lot of brands are, a lot of music brands, I feel like are being dinosaurs about, understanding the way the online world works and understand the value of it. I think they're stuck. A lot of them, not all, but a lot are stuck in metrics from several years ago where just sheer numbers mattered. A lot of them haven't adapted to understanding how the quality of your audience is way, way more important than the size of your audience. Like how engaged are they? How likely are they to convert? Like all that stuff. That's what really, 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 really matters. So if you have 5,000 people who are shown to spend money, who actually do engage with the content, who are in it with you, that's very, very different than making a post and getting 500,000 views from Oh yeah. Yeah, it's wildly different. Then you're that influencer that sells eight shirts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and nobody wants to partner up with the, with that person that sells eight shirts, especially not for what they're charging per post. Anyone smart. <laughs> exactly. It, it's almost an ever-changing goalpost basically, following the way that 
the online world develops and what's important as far as which metrics matter and uh, which metrics uh, actually are relevant in terms of uh, audience engagement versus sales. But you have to stay mindful of that or you're kind of leaving things up to chance, in my opinion. Yeah. The most important thing is to find some kind of balance between the two where you're, you know, and it is amazing. You know, I, I sometimes seem a little sour on the whole social media front, even though I, I do have a good social media presence because like, I guess I'm, I'm a little old school. I'm like, it's not about how many people are on your Instagram. It's about how many people click in through the door at your show. Like, and, uh, and I, I do firmly believe that, but it is amazing that social media allows us to reach such a vast audience you know, I, I go, uh, I haven't brought my solo band overseas yet, but I'll go overseas sometimes with Alice and, you know, we're in Tel Aviv or we're in, you know, these, uh, Slovenia or someplace I, you know, I've never been before. And there's people there that go, Oh, your dogs are so cute because they like, they know, <laughs> you know like they know about your life from your social media. And you, you have this chance to, to sort of tell your story and show your, you know, your life to so many people around the world and get to build that real world audience as you do it. So I might seem like a little, like get off my lawn sometimes about social media, but it, it serves such a great real world purpose for all of us as well, because how could, how could we ever reach those, you know, those fans, those countries, that audience so far away, if we didn't have this direct conduit to their phone? You know, you say that you seem get off my lawn about it, but <laughs> I didn't notice that at all. Maybe it's sort of like how I feel. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I was going to say, because all I've seen is uh, that you're really good at social media and put out products, different kinds of products, and are really taking advantage of this avenue that we have now. I do have fun with it. I didn't even realize that you felt that way about it. It doesn't come off. <laughs> I do like it. You know, I just... The I guess where I get a little get off my lawn e about it is when we start getting into the idea that social media numbers replace touring numbers, which obviously mm -hmm. you guys don't think that, you know, but a lot of the attitude that I hear sort of from a big portion of the guitar community lately is, well, you know, I have a lot of followers on YouTube or I do all this and I shouldn't have to go out there and tour. I shouldn't have to put out, you know, put the work in and and I think it's it's just apples and oranges. There's there's no right or wrong yeah. way to do it. I think the the real right way to do it is just do both and do it all. You know, the one thing that I have noticed though that is different, and it kind of just is what it is, um, is that you can start online and transition into the real world, and that's perfectly valid now. Where I think five years ago, six, seven years ago, when someone did that. They'd get no respect whatsoever. They'd just be considered a YouTuber. But that's changed because there's so many really great musicians who have come up through the internet now that I don't think they're laughed out of the room just on principle anymore. And I know you know and I know and Brown knows quite a few people who, yeah, they got discovered online, they built their audiences online, and then started touring. And... <laughs> Man, it's so cool to think about being able to skip some of the uh, really horrible touring <laughs> scenarios. No, if we had to be in the trenches, everybody has to be in the trenches, damn it. <laughs> yeah, right? That's that's the thing is, well, 
I'd like to tell myself. Get off my lawn. Built, <laughs> they built character, right? Made us stronger. Yes. <laughs> I don't know though. I don't, I don't know that it's a bad thing because I'm sure you've seen some of these people pull this off and do a great job live. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I think whatever avenue anybody takes to doing the thing that they love to do and being successful at it, I, I applaud that avenue. Some people are going to take advantage of, of different avenues than other. It's kind of like when, uh, you know, I, I talk to older guitar players than me, like the guys in Alice's band and they talk about, you know, they talk about me, like I'm the little kid of the band and they go, well, you and your YouTube and your, you know, back in my day, we had to slow the record down to learn the song. <laughs> like, and, <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I learned how to play from watching John Petrucci rock discipline. So what? <laughs> like, and, uh, so I think this is just the next iteration of that, you know, of, of people taking advantage of the tools they have at their disposal or the same thing as someone saying, well, I'm not going to use a Kemper because, I, I don't, I like my, you know, old school solid state, you know, combo amp or whatever. And there's, there's no right or wrong way. It's just time advancing and time is going to advance and you can keep doing it the same way or you can try new stuff. That's it. Yeah, absolutely. So out of curiosity, speaking of time with the amount of things that you do, keeping music, the priority, that's gotta be a challenge. Cause I know exactly what goes into making courses, marketing courses. I know what goes into being a guitar player touring. Like I, I know how much work everything you're doing is, and it's a fucking shitload of work. So a lot of people stop making music, the priority. Like I know when I started URM, I stopped making music, uh, URM. And now with riff hard going, like that's just not it's just not an option for me to uh, to pursue making music, running these companies. Um, now, that's not the same thing as what you're doing, but I'm just saying I know that your time has got to be, A, very limited, and B, has to be very, very well thought out and planned out, or am I just imagining that? No, you're absolutely right. Sometimes when I do podcasts and we, they start saying, so what have you been up to during the pandemic? Like by the time I pause to catch a breath, I'm like, fuck, I have a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in terms of putting music first, uh, it has been really difficult, not only because I have so many different facets of different things going on, but it's also been hard to be creative this last year, you know, last year and a half because I think as artists, you're used to having so many different stimuli around you. You know, you wake up, you're on tour, you're meeting new people and trying different foods and you're sort of being inspired by the world around you. And then all of us sort of being stuck in the same four walls the last year and change. It's definitely been uh, a process to be creative during this time. So I actually, I moved and I built this little studio room that you see around me. It's still sort of in a shambles right now. But I had to sort of create a space for myself that felt like going to the office, if that makes sense. It felt like yes. a place that I would go and do my creative work. And that would be the, that time that I would shut everything else out. And, and I don't do my other emails in here. I don't do like the only thing I do in this studio room is I write and record music and I do my interviews and stuff because this is where my mic and whatnot is. So these are the, that's the only things I do in this room. And then I take everything out, I take the computer out and I do all my emails and everything inside the house, the regular house. 
And that has been sort of the game changer for me to say, okay, when I'm in here, I'm only focusing on my guitar playing and being creative and having that space, even if it's like a corner of your room, you know, if you don't have the ability to have a a dedicated space to it, even if it's just a certain desk that you sit at in your house and you go, when I'm sitting here, this is my guitar time. That was the key for me, just sort of designating a space and time to be in here and work and not think about other stuff. So when you're working on that, you know, that's interesting. That's kind of like when people talk about curing insomnia, for instance, um, which uh, I have some experience with. One of the things that they say is uh, your bedroom has to be for sleep, like no watching shit in there, no like scrolling through your screen, no reading, nothing like you go there, you sleep. And then eventually the association becomes sleep. And then that's what happens eventually that along with a bunch of other techniques and things, but having a place where the only thing that you associate with it is productivity on the guitar or your instrument um, or music or whatever it is you do, uh, I think is very good mentally gets you in that mental state just by sitting down, I think. Totally. And I, I did the same thing with our bedroom. Actually, I just said like we have we watch TV and and I read and stuff in there. But uh, Josh and I are both pretty you know type A workaholics, and we would both always you know we keep the laptop next to the bed and you sort of wake up and you grab the computer and like sometimes he would sit you know in our old little place before we moved he would sometimes sit in the bed and do emails all day, you know yeah. and. And so that's kind of, that was kind of a rule that we made. (laughs) Me too. And, you know, like, and that's, so that's sort of a rule in the new house is, you know, let's, let's put the, let's leave the work in the workspace and like, we'll come in here to just chill. Like we will watch movies in bed and all that good stuff. But as far as like just sitting in the bed and answering emails on the laptop, uh, we have not done that once in the new house. This is like I didn't I didn't want to say no working in bed because it was a little <laughs> embarrassing. But yeah, that's one of my rules because I I would work in bed too all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Bedroom for sleeping and and bed activities only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no no work. If I didn't impose that on myself, like for real, I would work everywhere. And then you have no differentiation between any exactly. space it's in not your house. Good. There's no place to go and chill. Yeah, it's not good for your sanity. Um, and it's not good for your work either. I've noticed that ever since I started enforcing boundaries, the quality of my work got way higher. I'm sure you noticed the same thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Our little place that Josh and I lived in before, it was fine. You know, for, we, were, we, we were together. We lived there together about six years. And... It was fine for us because I was always gone. You know, I'm on the road usually 10 months out of the year. So, you know, I'd come home for two weeks and it's fine. And then I'd go out. And then, you know, when I was recording my first album, Controlled Chaos, I actually rented a little studio space nearby and I would go there and, and work. But for the, the first year of the pandemic or the first eight months, I guess I would say, it was a tiny, tiny little one bedroom. And the only place that either one of us could sit and work was at the kitchen table. So it was either him sitting there and working, doing emails or me sitting there trying to write my second album, which is what I'm doing now in this room. Oh, you must have an awesome relationship. (laughs) Well, we had to put it this way. We had to move. (laughs) we, We have a great relationship, but I mean, it was so tough because first of all, we're not used to being around each other that much. Like we love each other, but we're used to both having our own space. So then, you know. 
I'm sitting at the kitchen table with headphones on trying to record guitars into like, you know, the only thing that could fit on there was this little UA arrow, you know, <laughs> and, and a pair of headphones. And then he's coming through, walking through the kitchen to get something out of the fridge. And then I get distracted, start talking about what do you want for lunch? And then the dogs are coming in, they need to go out. And it's like, you know, you can't be fully productive. I'm reading a great book called Limitless by Jim Quick. And he talks about being in a flow state where you're just free of distractions and you're in your most creative mind. And that's what I've really been able to achieve, having this separate space. There are five layers. You can't see it at all now. Everything is drywalled in, but there are five layers of wall. We're completely soundproofed in here. I live in like a quiet neighborhood and we can you know, we can play drums. We can play live drums behind me at all hours of the night and you can't hear a single thing. So when you're in here, it's just, there's two doors, both shut. The world is gone. You focus and that's it. Something about this limitless book, just, uh, you just sparked a thought in my head. So part of, I think why that book is working for you is because you figured out how to focus best, right? So you can use what's in a book like that very effectively. I did a, a this 75 hard program last year. Did you finish? Yeah, I finished. I didn't finish. It's hard as fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have failed the phase one many times. I'm try, still trying it. But uh, but uh. I finished the first 75 hard. And the one of the ideas behind it, and this, this relates to what I was talking about with time management, something I'm about to say is, one of the arguments that the guy who came up with 75 hard is, is that all courses and self-help books and all that stuff, it all works, but the problem isn't in the books or anything like that. It's more in whether or not the people who are reading these books or taking these courses actually can stick to, can stick to it for long enough and focus on it long enough. That's what actually matters is uh, somebody's ability to get into the right frame of mind for long enough to actually achieve some results. And by the way, I will just add to that while we're on the subject. I think that what Andy Frisella talks about in his podcast and in 75 Hard and everything, it relates so much to musicians. Yes. It, I feel like it is a must- Listen, I mean, you know, whether it's the podcast, whether it's the 75 hard book or just the stuff that he posts on social media and on the first forum pages and stuff, I think it's definitely so, so relatable for what we all do in the industry we're in. I think sometimes it gets lumped into this fitness category. And um, I actually just started working with first forum and they're going to be working with me on my fitness challenges and stuff. And, oh, that's killer. Yeah. I love those guys. And um, to have that sort of discipline mindset to get through something like 75 hard has been, has been huge in my life, even though it's, and it's always been a travel day that messes me up. It has never been like, I've gotten through all my normal days at home and then I'll have to get on a plane and then I'll get in late and there's no way for me to do an outdoor 45 minute workout. And I fail out again. <laughs> yeah. It's really, really tough, but I mean, still, I think just being able to get through as much of it as you've gotten through is really the, that's really the benefit. Totally. And I try to do some of live hard now a little early. Like I like the cold shower of live hard and uh, I like the visualization of live hard. So even though I'm, I have not gotten to live hard yet, I still have started trying to incorporate that stuff into my daily routine. It makes a huge difference. And the way that I relate it to the time management thing is 
I think a lot of people will ask, how do you manage your time? How do you divide your time? And I don't think that that's really what matters. What really matters is how consistent are you with the things that you're doing? And when you are doing these things, how focused are you? Like how disciplined is your mind to see these things through? And then the actual tactics of time management or balancing things matter a lot less and can be individualized. They can be personalized. I think that really when people are asking, well, how do you, how do you manage your time? They're more asking, how do you fucking focus and stay consistent? <laughs> I think that's what they're really asking. I think you're right. And what I tell a lot of people, if I'm ever asked about that is if there's something important to you, you know, like for example, the, for me, it's usually about one of two things. How do you, how do I find time to work out or how do I find time to practice guitar? Because people's lives are so crazy, you know, not everyone has, you know, the time in their life to do something like 75 hard. People are just trying to figure out how to fit in 30 minutes of guitar playing a day. My answer to them is you have to schedule it. Like for my schedule for my day, I have a list every single day of stuff to do. And it's always long. <laughs> like, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and I've got times for everything and I've got it all sorted out how I want to do it. And if I didn't have a certain time to do these things... I, it wouldn't all get done. So just as, you know, I always, I use the example of like a dentist appointment, just as though, you, just as if you'd schedule a dentist appointment to say, I've got the dentist at three 30, you wouldn't blow off the dentist because of other stuff because your day got busy. You have your dentist at three 30 and that's the time you go to the dentist. So you have to schedule your practice time in at, you know, at a time like that, I get off work at six at seven o'clock. I'm going to play guitar for 30 minutes and don't flake on it just because work was long. And you got tired. Like maybe you have to drive home a little faster or not stop at the grocery store on the way because you have your appointment to play guitar from seven to seven thirty. In addition to making the schedule, you have to have the, uh, not, I don't want to say willpower cause it's not, it's not about willpower, but the desire to see the benefits of, um, whatever it is you're choosing to work on. Like, that has to be the most important thing because then you'll find a way to make that schedule work out. Otherwise, if you're just making a schedule and saying, yeah, I'm going to play guitar at 7 p.m. We're going to work out at 7 p.m. But the mental side of it hasn't, you know, hasn't locked on to how important it is, hasn't made it a priority, you won't stick to the schedule. Oh, yeah. And it's about, I think, that risk-reward system you know, you have to, you have to figure out what you want, you know, say you're, you're trying to stick to a diet, you know, which is, this is, this is my downfall is the food. Cause I love to eat and I, I know better. And this is, that's always Likewise. been my downfall. I love fucking food. Like I love to eat. And, um, and so I always, I have this mental conversation with myself. Would I rather be in the shape that I want to be in or would I rather eat this donut right now? And like, and you have this instant gratification of like, man, I eat, this is going to taste amazing and it's going to be warm and chewy and like, and I get like real into it in my head, but then you go, you have to just sort of think of these incremental changes leading to the results that you want to get. If I eat this one today and then I eat another one tomorrow, another one tomorrow, then I'm not going to have this long-term goal. And once you start seeing the long-term reward as the goal, rather than the instant gratification, I think that's when you're really able to make that lasting change. I agree. And that's exactly how that relates to music too, because you're not going to get better at music in one sitting. No, I wish. Or two or three. <laughs> and the longer you, the longer you play, the better you get, the longer it takes you to get noticeably better, which is the worst. <laughs> Just like working out, right? Absolutely. 
It's all connected. I understand the impatience. It's so weird because I'm not sure that I think it's always instant gratification, but I know that everything with my career has always taken way longer than I wanted it to. But at the same time, it hasn't taken that long, but I have wanted it to happen now, now, fucking now, now. And why hasn't it happened sooner? Like that's kind of just something that's always in my head, but not enough to frustrate me and get me to stop. And I think that it's super, super important for people to, to have those feelings like, yeah, you want things now, recognize it and then just do the work anyways. And be cool with the fact that (laughs) now could be five years from now. Oh yeah. And it sounds like a really cheesy thing to say, but the work is its own reward. The journey is, is important. And if you just get it handed to you, it kind of all relates back to what we're talking about, about playing shows and going out there and sometimes playing in front of 50 people and not having this big hero moment and having the character building gigs. If I didn't have the character building gigs, I wouldn't be ready to go and play with Alice. So you need to have that journey. You need to have that growth before you're sort of ready to have that thing that you want. Is learning to love the journey something that came natural to you? Because it certainly hasn't for me. You know, uh, I grew up in sports. So uh, I started competing in gymnastics when I was really young. And by the time I was 10 and 11, I was flying around the country going to gymnastics competitions. And... At a really young age, I feel like I learned that important lesson that what you put in is what you're going to get out. Like I remember really Mm -hmm. clearly, really, really clearly one of my first competition ever, my first big competition, I must've been seven or eight years old. And I had been practicing for years and years. I was in ballet and dance class and gymnastics from basically the time I could walk And I had been practicing and practicing and I I went finally up and competed against hundreds of girls and I won. I won every category and the overall. And I loved it. (laughs) Like I loved it. I was so proud. My coaches were were proud. My mom was crying and everybody was so happy. And then we had another one, another competition a couple months later and I didn't place at all. I didn't even get like a, you know, a, a participation trophy. And like, and I thought this is bullshit, you know, like, and I I went crying to my coach and I was like, why didn't I win? She goes, because he didn't work as hard this time. And I was like, it was seven or eight years old and it clicked. I was like, oh, okay. So what you put into it directly affects what you get out of it. I understand. And then from that point on, I worked my ass off at, you know, my little gymnastics school because I wanted that reward again. I wanted to stand up on the podium and I wanted my parents to be proud and I wanted to win and I wanted to collect the trophies and all this, you know, and feel that pride of what I was doing. I was young. It was probably more about the trophy than anything, (laughs) but I feel like that served me really well in my music journey because I was never afraid to go out there and, you know, play covers or, you know, do these different gigs, you know, singer songwriter gigs or tour with artists that maybe wasn't my favorite band or, you know, anything like that, because I always had that understanding of whatever you put in is what you're going to get out. And I wanted to be the greatest performing guitar player that I could. And so by the time I got on stage in front of a lot, a lot of people, you know, with Alice, I was so seasoned and so ready for it that I came out guns blazing and I was able to you know, step into that role really easily instead of still finding my feet when I was in that position. Man, th- things happening before you're ready are 
just as bad as them not happening oh, yes. at all, I think. <laughs> if not worse, because it's discouraging. Yeah, possibly worse. That is a very fortunate lesson to have learned very early in life, I think, is the, the input and output correlation, especially as a kid, because if you experience something like that as a kid, you're basically are programmed for life to understand that. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing to understand. I think though, that if someone is not programmed to understand that not everyone is that there is a way to hack it basically, which is to start giving yourself small wins, figure out the things that you can succeed in and they don't have to be big things at all by small wins. I mean, I'm going to practice for 10 minutes today. I'm going to go to the gym for 10 minutes today, not because working out for 10 minutes a day is going to get you the be all end all results that you need. But because if you can make promises to yourself and keep them and that becomes the reward little by little by little, you program your brain to understand that input and output are correlated and uh, can basically hack it. I think. Yeah. Did you read Atomic Habits by James Clear? No, but you know, so many people have mentioned that I should. Oh yeah. The the way that you're talking, it sounds like you've read that book. If you haven't read it, you'd probably like not. it. It's really all sort of about exactly what you're saying about how, you know, what we've been talking about, these small, small changes. But one thing it actually says in the book is if you want to make a habit of working out every day, then for the first week, just lace up your shoes and drive to the gym and then don't go in, which is not necessarily mm -hmm. what I would recommend. <laughs> like, although that does seem like, you know, a workout I would like. Um, <laughs> but, it, you know, it's the simple act of doing the smallest step to get towards your goal and then doing something. And then you go in and you walk on the treadmill for five minutes and then you go in and walk on the treadmill for eight minutes and then like very, very incremental changes. And while driving to the gym and not going in, I think is a little too incremental. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's an interesting thought to just take the very, very smallest baby steps on the way. That's why I think that when people ask for help with motivation, it's, it's a really bad sign. I don't know if you ever get these questions like, how do I get motivated Like for whatever, whatever it is that they're talking about? When I get those questions, my initial thoughts are, maybe this isn't what you're actually into. Maybe this is the wrong thing. Because if you're trying to find reasons to be motivated, maybe that's the answer right there is uh, maybe this is the wrong thing. Because I think that if you really, really want something, you don't need to try to understand why you should do it or why you should do certain things. I mean, yeah, you're going to feel like shit certain days, but I don't think that anyone else can make you motivated or that it can ever come from an external source. It's always got to be internal, always. That's one of the things I love about the 75 Hard program and really sort of like what our guy, Andy Frisella, talks about all the time. You have to show up even when you don't want to do it. And that's what, you know, you're going to, there's going to be days when you're not motivated. There's going to be days when you really don't feel like it. Boy, there is not one day of my life that I feel like taking that cold shower. Oh, they suck. <laughs> that's the worst. But discipline is like any other muscle in your body and you have to exercise it. So that's, that's why I do the cold shower, even though I'm not doing that program yet. I do the cold shower every time at the end of my shower in order to train that discipline muscle to go, okay, this is going to be the worst few minutes of my day. 
crank up the cold, sit in there and shiver and complain and, and just like, and train that mental toughness in your mind with something that's not so bad. A cold shower sucks, but it's not so bad, you know? And so it's a great way to train that mental discipline to do something that you don't want to do. So then later when it is something that's tough, you have that fortitude to be able to do it. So what's it like for you when you have something that you got to do, you don't want to do it, but you do it anyways. Is it like a voice that's telling you not to like, how does that manifest for you? And how does it, how does the decision to just go through with it manifest? For me, it's like ripping off a bandaid. Like for example, I wake up every morning and I do cardio. I wake up, I drink my coffee, and then I do cardio at the house before I go to the gym. Every single morning when I'm sitting there drinking my coffee, looking out, you know, I sit and look out at my street and wake up and listen to the birds and and I go, ah, I don't want to get in there and get on the bike, you know, like, and then at one point there's not even a conscious decision. I just go, I finish the coffee and I just sort of like put it down and there, I get up and I get on the bike. And it's not even, I think I'm sort of past the point of having the, the pep talk, the self pep talk. Mm-hmm. It's just like, ah, here we go. It just t- rip off the bandaid and go do it. And that's it. I was watching a David Goggins video. I love him. Yeah, me too. He's so fucking brutal. He's amazing. Did you read his book? Yes. Did you read um, Living with the Seal by Jesse Eitzler? Yeah. So good. It's fucking hilarious. The audiobook version of the David Goggins book, by the way, that's the one I recommend for people because he's got com- running commentary on it the whole time. I keep hearing that. I'm a reader. I like to read, read and not listen, but I keep hearing that audiobook is really good. It's worth it for that because uh it's like twice as long as just the book. Oh wow. He just goes on and on with really really great stuff, but he I saw a video recently where he was talking about how lots of times he looks at his gym shoes and just doesn't want to fucking do it <laughs> and still has that battle with himself and then just does it. That's the thing. Like I think that the battle is real and I think for some people they may always have it, but they shouldn't change their behavior. They should still just go ahead and do it. And I think practicing guitar, same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. It can't be that every single guitar player who's gotten great has wanted to practice guitar every single time that they've practiced guitar. Hell no. (laughs) (laughs) There will always be days that you're not motivated. And those days are the ones that are the most important to have those habits of consistency to just say like, I'm not motivated today. There's not one person on the planet that's motivated every single day. They might act like it on stupid Instagram, but they're not (laughs) like people probably think that about me and I'm not, you know, all the time, every day I have days that there's things I don't want to do. But the important thing is doing it anyway. And we have all experienced that in some aspect. I mean, you know, thinking even about in high school and doing homework when you don't want to do homework, but you have to do it because you know that you've got to get the grade and get ahead and pass the, pass the class. It's just exercising that muscle over and over and over again. Okay. My question is not about motivation because I don't think motivation matters. Discipline matters. But what I am wondering though, is how you get your mind engaged because you can easily be like, I'm doing it anyways. I don't care if I don't feel like it. I'm going to sit down and do this thing. But if you don't want to be there, how do you get your brain to get into it? Just do it. Stop complaining. For guitar playing, if I'm feeling like that, I improvise. So I will put on, I'm 
super into like the YouTube backing tracks. So sometimes I'll put on a random backing track from YouTube. Sometimes I'll put on like a, a Bon Jovi song or Heart or, you know, just some good like Brian Adams, like power ballads. And I just sort of like find the key and let myself get lost in playing guitar. And that always pulls me out of whatever demotivational funk I'm in. Because once I start getting back to what I love about playing guitar, which is just, I'm a really emotional guitar player. Like I, I wear my heart on my sleeve in a, in a way of, you know, it's an odd metaphor, but you know, I, I put my heart mm -hmm. into my playing and if I'm in a good mood on stage, you can tell. And if I've had a shit day on stage, you can probably tell, like, I'm just always very emotional in, in my note choices and how I play. And once I start just like cutting loose and letting that happen without having any goal or mind, I'm not sitting down trying to write anything brilliant or get better at anything or practice anything or learn new techniques. I'm just sitting there doing purely what I love to do with the instrument. That's when I think I fall back in love. I fall in love with guitar all over again every day. Every day that I have a good practice session, I fall in love with this instrument over again. And it takes that time of just saying, like, giving yourself the permission, the authenticity to just express fully without an agenda. And that's what pulls me into that mode. And then once I've done that for five, 10 minutes, I'm like, okay, I'm going, let's write. Like, so you have a way around that. You have a, you have a coping mechanism, I guess, for like a hack. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's really, really important because um, it's no good to just sit down and do the work mindlessly. That's kind of not the point. I mean, it's better than not doing anything, but if you're just kind of phoning things in, that's you're not going to get the same results as if you're actually engaged. And so I think it's very, very important to have techniques for getting yourself engaged in what you're doing. And if that, if what that means is reconnecting with why you love the instrument to me, what I'm hearing too, is that what you're doing is basically turning the light bulb on. That's the metaphor I use is sometimes I just feel like the light bulb is not coming on. And then any of those types of techniques that I do are all in the name of getting the light bulb to turn on because once it's on, then I can do some focused work. But until then, uh, everything I do will be fucking garbage. So, <laughs> so it's not a good thing to just sit there and create garbage. Yeah. So what do you do? What are, what are your techniques? I will read or listen to something that's not motivational, but that gets the brain active. And I'll try to do thought exercises, uh, just simple shit, like writing down where it is that I want to go with something. It's really not that complicated. Once I start asking myself certain questions, like, how can this be better? How can this be bigger? What went wrong with this? Like, really, it doesn't matter what it is, as long as I get myself thinking. And then once I get myself thinking and writing a few things down, it's on, basically. That is so interesting. Yeah, I just have to, to flip the switch. Like, I just need to do whatever I can do to flip the switch. Yeah, I love that. And, and what you just said, and what I just said, sort of, it's it illustrates so nicely how different people's processes are because your process is very cerebral and my process mm -hmm. is very emotional, but it gets us to the exact same place. And I, I think that's so cool. Yeah. You got to know what works for you. That's why when people, not you asking now in the podcast, but I mean like someone who is trying to figure this out from the beginning, asking me what I do. I'm not so sure that what I do 
is going to be helpful to them right? because they kind of got to figure it out for themselves. Then once they have figured it out for themselves, then it might be helpful to hear what I do because then maybe it will inspire them to look at what they do in a different way. But, but I really think that it's such a personalized thing that knowing what it is that gets you going should be priority because that's what you will use over and over and over in your life to get through the really shitty mental states, which are going to happen. Yes. Once the spark is going, like then it's I, almost like no thought. Yeah, of course. Uh, I have a song on my, my first album called Mariana Trench. And when I was writing it, I was thinking about pressure. And all the pressure that I was under, you know, like we had done the, the Kickstarter, we had, you know, there was this really limited amount of time that I had to record this record before going back out on tour with Alice. And I was just really feeling the pressure. And I wanted to, I wanted to convey that in the song. I wanted to have these sort of like big churning chords that push that feeling of, you know, of sort of tr- struggling to get up, up above water and breathe and feeling the pressure. But I think if I had articulated that in those words before doing it, I don't know if I would have just sort of emotionally like vomited out the song that came out. Uh, it wasn't really until later that I started trying to articulate these words of of being under pressure and treading water. Uh, it was like way later that I came up with the descriptive of what it was. And when I was writing, it was just a feeling, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So another thing I should be clear about, that's not how I would get myself to write music if I wasn't in the mood to write music. I'm talking strictly just being creative. But like when it comes to music, what I would do when I was needing to write, but not able to is I would learn a new concept or something from a piece of music that's not related to the style I'm working on. Like try to like transcribe a Maroon 5 song or some shit like that. Or like something that is so not what I'm working on, uh, or like a gypsy jazz song or something, just something that's going to get my brain going to places that it's not used to going to. And then halfway through that, just be spitting out riffs. Halfway through that, you're like running, screaming back to writing metal riffs. Like, get me out of this Maroon 5. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, they've got some good, good core changes. Yeah, they do. But I guess it's a similar sort of thing. Like I intellectually know that I need to do this intellectual exercise. And once I start doing the intellectual exercise, shit just happens. When did you figure this out about yourself? Is this something that you've always just kind of done and then now you know? Or is it something that you figured out through trial and error? I'll tell you something interesting that's kind of been this recurring theme over the last few months with me and finishing this second album is uh, I'm going through a big growth phase as an artist right now because I have always really sort of held on to being this very emotional songwriter and not at all, you know, I don't really edit myself very much. I just sort of, I write from the heart, I perform from the heart and that's what I do. And uh, I think in the long run, the music might suffer for it a little bit because I'm coming to terms with the reality that it doesn't compromise your artistic integrity to self-edit or to work with an engineer or a producer or another songwriter Mm -hmm. that really knows what they're doing and can help you say what you want to say in maybe a a better way. And that's something I'm, I'm coming to terms with so much and realizing that 
again, it's, it's great to be an emotional artist and I never want to lose that part of myself, but I'm also trying to find the analytical part of myself a little more in the writing of this upcoming album. And I think just having that in mind has helped me grow a lot as a songwriter. And I think you guys will be pleasantly surprised to hear sort of more structured songs, more well thought out and more mature songwriting on this upcoming album, because I'm learning to be just a little more analytical about things. So kind of like there's the emotional creation phase, and then there's the going back and editing it kind of phase. Is that kind of what you mean? Basically, yeah. Or even starting from, you know, starting from the standpoint of, you know, I'm having some guest singers on this upcoming Mm -hmm. album, which I have not had before. So, you know, when I was writing the songs on Controlled Chaos, I would write, I would pick up whatever guitar I happened to have in my hotel room and I would write on that. And that's the key the song was in, (laughs) you know, like there was no, there was no thought to any other part of the process of other than I've got my drop D guitar here. This song's in drop D. Like, it's, and so now it's like, okay, now I'm thinking of a singer. If I, if I have a singer in mind for a certain song or a style of singer, this is going to be a song that's comfortable in this person's range, that has a riff that this person could, you know, could create a, mo- a vocal melody over that's not just whatever cool guitar thing I think of that's actually makes sense for a vocalist to write something over. This is something that could potentially be on the radio. Like it has big enough, open enough chords that we could have a big catchy chorus that could go to radio and, uh, and not just write from this sort of selfish, indulgent guitar player place that I've been happily living in the past few years. Do you feel like those kinds of constraints help you creatively at all? If you had asked me that three months ago, I would have said no. But now after the last few months of really buckling down and learning new things. I think, yes, it does. And I would have said, even in, you know, even a year ago, I would have definitely said, I just write how I write and that's it. And now thinking back on it, I guess that's a pretty petulant way to think about your art. You know, like you can't just stamp your foot and say, everything I do is good. You have to be willing to take a step back and look at it more objectively and say, yes, it's good. The idea is good let's make it a little better. And there's no, there's no shame in that. I have so much learning still to do in my life. And I think that's cool, you know, but I, I went from this sort of approach of like, I just want to play guitar. And I wasn't really worried as much about, you know, I was always writing music, but I wasn't really writing it for anything. I was much more concerned with, you know, getting into the hired gun scene and touring. So I focused my all of my energy and my ability on performing. And like, I want to be able to run around on stage and play like a demon and jump off shit and like be like, you know, the most, I wanted to be like that performer that everybody would go to. And then when I started writing solo music, I just, I had so many constraints on my playing from playing other people's music for so many years, you know, whether I'm playing Iron Maiden songs or I'm playing Alice Cooper songs or I'm doing any of these other hired gun gigs that I did that I was like, I was like, uh, you know, breaking out of this box. I was like, I'm going to do whatever I want. Like, and no one's going to tell me any. That's why I self-produced and engineered my album because I didn't want anybody telling me anything about how it was going to be. I just wanted to do everything on my absolute own terms. I don't know how to mic drums. Like, you know, like I had no business engineering that whole record. I should have taken a step back and had somebody do a lot of it. But I just felt this like, burning need to just, I have to do it myself and I have to do whatever the hell I want. And I did it. 
as you said, like you, now I've done that. And now I feel sort of like I can take a deep breath and work with people that really know what they're doing. And I can just be the guitar player and the visionary and let other people help me bring it to life in like a more actionable way. Sounds like you just needed to get that out of your system. Exactly. About the hired gun thing though, that right there is a set of boundaries too, um, a set of limitations. I think that it's not suited for every musician because I think a lot of musicians fundamentally have a hard time with the constraints of playing for somebody else and being able to be themselves within that. But if anything, sounds to me like uh, you already have all the training in the world for giving yourself constraints and still being you because that's what you've done with your career in the hired gun. I think you're right. You haven't just been someone in the background of Justin Timberlake's band playing under the stage or whatever. Like you've still found a way to be yourself within the confines of the rules of that gig. Yeah, I have. And it's just been a balancing act for me figuring it out over the last few months because, you know, I would go into these songwriting sessions and I would come out super defeated at, at the beginning because I would go into it with my own crazy ideas. And then, you know, I'd be working with, with, you know, other, other people that are like, well, that doesn't really work. And everything I was saying that was like, well, how do I make it interesting like this? And how about I throw in this off time thing? Or how about I, how about we do a turnaround here? And they're like, well, that doesn't work. Well, that doesn't work. Well, you can't really do that. Now the song's too long. And it's like, I hate all of this. <laughs> like, um, so at the beginning, it, it was really frustrating. And then I, I, I sort of developed this, this attitude of like, I'm just going to treat it like a session, like it's someone else's song and then I won't get hurt by it. And, and that's not a solution either because I still have to love these songs. I still have to fall in love with this record. So now, you know, I've gone through all these sort of tantrums <laughs> about it. And now I'm sort of at the other side of like, now I feel confident and comfortable and I've worked with a lot of different people and I understand the process a lot better. So now I feel like I can go into writing the remainder of the songs and, and tracking the rest of the record, knowing that I can still get my personality across within these constraints and have it still be me and not like I'm writing someone else's music. Makes sense. What is it that you need in a studio situation or studio partner in order to feel like a, your creativity is being um, allowed to flourish, but B you're also getting that, uh, that editing and improvement that you're looking for. Like what needs to happen in order for you to feel like a you're still being yourself but b shit is going to be better than if you were just left to your own devices i think for me and i'm i'm still learning as i go but uh and this is all a, a very new experience for me but so far the biggest thing for me is sort of working with someone that has a similar frame of reference to me so you know like and i've worked with uh, several different people across the spectrum of rock and metal music and some that were really just sort of straightforward radio rock songwriters and some that are more geared towards the, the shred heavy stuff that I like. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like you need to have somebody that at least sort of understands what you're saying and where you're coming from as an artist. You know, I would have conversations with some people that I didn't end up working with that 
didn't know, you know, if, if someone starts talking to me about shrapnel records or like Steve Vai or Satriani or this and that, then I know like, Hey, they get part of what I do. And then if someone's talking to me about, you know, Jeff Loomis or monuments or like the heavier, newer stuff that I like, then I know that they get where I'm coming from on that aspect. So as long as we have some kind of common ground and commonality, if I say like, I want to write a part that sounds like, uh, Steve Vai, the animal, they're going to go, okay, like, let's find a way to make something that sounds like that vibe other, you know, it, as opposed to someone that's like, well, I don't know what that is. Let's make a five finger death punch song, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. So they, so they have to understand your world. Yes, I think so. And, and understand how to bridge my world or, you know, bridge the artist's world with what sort of makes sense. It's been hard, you know, it, I haven't ever trusted anyone with my vision for my own stuff. And I feel like I've constantly been entrusted with other people's vision for their stuff and I can execute that really, really well. But for me to put that trust in someone else has been a huge process. So it's actually really comforting that you say that it's, it's really just about finding the right person. Yeah. And I can tell you from the producer standpoint, one of the things that I consider a good producer to be able to do is to make the artist feel at ease about this whole thing. Like uh, if they feel like they're going to the dentist office or <laughs> if they feel, or they feel like they're going into an adversarial scenario, you lose as a producer. Like you have already lost. The artist needs to feel like you're their partner in this. And different producers have different ways of getting there with somebody. I mean, at the end of the day, it comes down to chemistry, but there are some producers who definitely take the my way or the highway approach. And I, man, I think that that's a very outdated and old school way of approaching things. And I think modern producers really do or should understand that they're there to bring the artist's vision to life and they need to be a partner in that. And their vision is less important way less important. Amen. <laughs> yeah. It's, but a lot of great producers understand that. That's yeah. the thing. I think that's some crucial understanding. And I think when you've recorded enough people, you start to realize that a lot of them have studio PTSD. Uh, I've recorded a lot of people who would come in, who had a previous experience in the studio that was really bad, uh, really bad as in the person didn't understand what they were trying to do or was trying to make it all the producer's vision, uh, disregarding the band's vision, all, anything like that. And uh, if that's like their formative experience in the studio, uh, that's what they'll think the studio is. Uh, and I've noticed that sometimes as a producer, you have to, you have to help them understand that that was that scenario. That's not every scenario. And there's a lot of psychology that goes into this from, on both ends. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's, it's funny that you say that because that is what happened with me. Like that's my first experience. And, and don't get me wrong. It was a great experience and we got great songs out of it, but I hated every second of it. <laughs> like I just felt very stifled by, by this process. And, and the person I was writing with is so talented and so nice and just like a, a wonderful lovely, creative person, but like the vibe, I just, I wasn't ready for it. And I came out of that going, well, I, it's official. I hate writing with people and I'm not going to do it anymore. 
And of course, then I went and wrote with some other people and it was great, you know, so it's just, it is really about that chemistry. And it's almost like a, it's almost like bringing baggage from a past relationship. Like it's very similar, you know, you've been cheated on in the past and then you think that everyone else is going to cheat on you in the future because it happened the first time. And, uh, I think once you sort of get out of that mentality, um, it's a lot easier to move forward in life and in the studio. Yeah. One of the hardest things about, uh, new relationships or, relationships is remembering that you're not seeing the previous person yeah, and that they, it's not their fault. They had nothing to do with it. It's very, very similar with a bad writing session or a bad studio session. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that someone was an asshole or a tyrant or anything like that. It could have just been bad chemistry, like not meant to be or incompatible working styles incompatible visions like yeah there are situations where someone is a tyrant fucking asshole piece of shit <laughs> but uh that's not most of the cases in my in my experience in my experience most of the cases are just bad chemistry just these people are not supposed to work together and uh i think it's very enlightening when you get into a situation that does work and you realize wait a second that was that was just that situation totally that's not all situations it's actually really enlightening for me to have this conversation right now with you guys, <laughs> just hearing that it's not just me and my experience in doing this. Uh, it's actually really helpful. It's definitely not just you. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, it's most definitely not just you. This is uh, <laughs> I experienced it too as a guitar player. So I've experienced it both from the guitar player side and the producer side. The first guy that Doth worked with when we were getting signed was one of the most horrific experiences of my life. Oh no. And uh yeah, oh yeah, it was bad news. And um then I had a good studio experience after that, like a really awesome one. Getting to work with Colin Richardson, for instance, that was unfucking believably cool. And so I've had and I've had other studio experiences as a as an artist that were really, really cool. So having experience like the worst possible one to like the best case scenario. It's just like, I know what the range is there from experience. And I also know that when it's bad, it's like really fucking bad and it can definitely make you feel like that's just how it is. Yeah. And then the fact that you come out of it afterward, you know, at least for me, uh, I came out of this experience afterward, basically with something I wasn't happy with and feeling like I, I had written it. Like feeling like well, this is my fault and I, I don't like it and it's and it's on me and in reality like it's it's not on anybody sometimes it just doesn't work you know or sometimes the song comes out and you're like man this isn't what I would have chosen but this will work you know and it's just it's just a process and you know when I'm coming from this super emotional the emotionally charged state of like you know, having your guard up and having your walls up around your songs and saying, no one has ever edited me. <laughs> like, who are you to start? Um, it's, it's not, it, that's not a healthy mentality either. So it's just, I think you guys are absolutely right. Just finding the right chemistry, finding the right person. And uh, when we finish, I'll have to uh, run who I have in mind by you and see what you guys think. Sure. I'd be happy to know and help advise, but uh, I'd love that. Yeah. It's hard for producers too, though, I got to say. So I know that a lot of producers listen to this. Um, it's hard for producers, especially producers who are trying to build a career when they have an experience where they don't have chemistry with an artist. They'll also start to think, I fucking suck. Like this is, <laughs> this is like 
it's not just the artist that's that gets like uh, traumatized from it. Producers will get traumatized by working with artists they can't connect with either because they'll start to think that they don't know how to communicate with people or maybe all their ideas suck or like why don't they want my feedback? Isn't that what they hired me for? And, uh, and again, it comes down to the same thing. Yeah. There are some producers whose ideas suck, but, uh, more often than not, they're working with the wrong band. They're working with the wrong client. And once they work with the right clients for them, uh, they'll actually listen to their ideas and they'll want to. Um, so one thing I'm wondering is in more current situations, uh, I know that having your music edited or worked on by other people is still a new thing, but uh, sounds to me like it's more like you're questioning it less or going into it with a more uh, positive uh, attitude, I guess, is what it sounds like. Very much so. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. And, and honestly, those tantrums, That's I was gotta throwing, help. It, it was killing me, honestly, like it, it really was the, the last few months of, you know, just, just being miserable over the process instead of embracing the process, the process it's, it's like what we've been talking about. The process is going to happen and mm-hmm. I can fight every step of it and cry. I mean, I was crying all the time. I was not, thank God, not in the studio to the, <laughs> to the producers, <laughs> but I was coming home in tears and, and like doubting everything that I was doing and saying, maybe I just don't know how to write good songs. <laughs> like, you know, and it was just like breaking my heart over and over again to do this. And then once I took a step back from that and just said, okay, now I'm, I'm sort of writing with a band member. It's not really like someone coming in and changing me as an artist. It's almost like writing with another band member to say like, you know, having someone to bounce ideas off of. And once I went into it with a better attitude, like the rest of things in life, uh, it has gotten a lot better and a lot easier. Amazing how that works, right? It, it really is. It's all in your mindset. Those damn cold showers. <laughs> so out of curiosity, when it comes to feedback in a hired gun situation, um, is that a, for whatever reason, is that way easier to take or was it hard at one point in time and you had to figure out how to compartmentalize it or whatever? Oh, I'm great with feedback. If I'm being hired for something like I want to execute someone's vision to the absolute best that I can. And if they're telling me I want it more like this, like I, I relish it as long as they're not being a dick about it, you know, but yeah. I, I love, I love feedback because I don't have any emotional attachment to the way I play Alice Cooper songs. Let's use as mm-hmm. an example, you know, if I learn it and I learn it a certain way, maybe I get a little attached to some of the shreddy, like if there's like an eighties song, like a Kane Roberts solo or something I'm doing, but I don't have any emotional attachment to the song. You know, 18 is a fun song to play, but it means nothing to me from like a, an emotional standpoint. I like doing it. I like playing it. I like giving the fans the song to see, but if they want me to change a chord or change how I play it, like I literally don't care at all. I want them to be happy. The only thing I care about is Alice being happy and the fans being mm-hmm. happy and management being happy. And that's it. I, I don't care at all about what I play. And I think that's sort of what gives my solo stuff so much emotional charge is because everything else that I do, I don't have anything emotionally invested in it. So I put a hundred percent of my emotion into this stuff. Makes sense. 
I think, though, that for people listening who are looking to be hired guns, that approach, I really think you should be writing it down and uh, <laughs> and making it making it part of how they live their lives. Uh, the this is not your music. No. You are there to you are there to perform a basically a service for the artist and uh, um, execute their vision as well as possible and that's it. Absolutely. Like the you take the classic 70s Alice songs, that's not my style of guitar playing. If I was to go out and do my, you know, everybody's probably by now heard the the story of my Alice audition where I went in and I did a bunch of shred stuff all over the songs and it and it bombed. They hated it. You know, like they hated my first audition because I went in, I was doing sweeps and tapping and playing over the neck and, you know, doing all this as show offy as I could. And the note that I got from Bob Ezrin was, have you ever heard an Alice Cooper song? (laughs) (laughs) Which was terrifying from Bob Ezrin. (laughs) You have to always play for the song. You have to always listen to what the original guitar player might have done in that scenario and, and take yourself and your ego out of it even if that means your ego is going to be misplaced into this solo music where it then has to be further beaten down. <laughs> well, I think it's important to acknowledge, though, that we all have an ego. Uh, that doesn't mean that we all have an oversized, irrational, pathologically fucked up ego. Sure. But we all, but we all have an ego, and it needs, to, uh, it needs to be acknowledged. If we have to put it aside for something, we're going to need to get our ego fulfillment somewhere else. And if we put it aside for too long or pretend like it's not there, the need to get it fulfilled other in other places will become irrational, I think. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that probably this is such a this is really cathartic for me, this this podcast. <laughs> um, but I think you're you're absolutely right. And I probably had spent so much time, you know, not that I don't get a, a nice little ego boost from those shows and performing because that's really what I feel I do best. But I think creatively, I had no fulfillment of ego because I was really just realizing other people's vision for a very long time. So I think that's why I was so belligerent about not having any outside input on the solo stuff and why it's been harder for me to to go through that now. It's like a pendulum swing. Exactly. The thing that I am fascinated by, though, is... Uh, like I know I brought this up earlier, but if you don't mind, I'd like to explore it a little more. How you manage to really, really create your own unique identity while playing within those rules and not seeming like you're trying to steal the show. It's like, how do you simultaneously keep your head down, do your job, execute their vision, but also kind of like become a star and bring attention to yourself like without upstaging you know the star seems like a balancing act it is definitely and i feel really lucky in one respect that really what i get hired now is you know i get hired for is to be myself they will bring me in even before alice they would sort of bring me in because they wanted me to be me and I feel really thankful that I developed that personality at a sort of a young age and started touring so young and started developing this really exuberant stage personality where people go, if Nita just comes in and does Nita, she'll add to the show. You know, it will be something that people will want to come see rather than taking away from it. And I spent a lot of years touring trying to figure out 
what my thing was, you know, where do I fit into this box? And when I was, uh, you know, I guess I was about 18, I, I know I got some advice that, you know, you're a girl, you're, you know, a pretty girl, you have to show, you know, you have to be sexy on stage. You have to put out this, you know, this personality and, and show your skin and show this. And I was never comfortable with that, but I went through sort of a, a phase where I was showing a little more and being, well, you know, wearing tighter stuff or showing a little more skin and I hated it. <laughs> I hated it so much. And I realized that is not the kind of attention that I want. And then I went the complete polar opposite way. And I was like, I don't want to be thought of as a female guitar player. I only want to be respected as a guitar player. And I would go on tour. Uh, I think this is around when we first met, maybe like 2009, 10. It was a Dragon Force tour, right? It was, yeah. April, to May, 2009. 2009, yeah. So I was yeah. playing with As Blood Runs Black back then. Oh, I didn't know you played with them. Yeah. <laughs> I was touring with them. and um, How did I not know that? And I was wearing, like, probably because I was unrecognizable. I would wear, like, you know, men's camouflage pants, shorts, and, uh, you know, a, a men's T-shirt and, like, not as much makeup. And I, I had, I did not want to be known. I didn't want to be, like, the hot chick. I just wanted to be a guitar player. And I wasn't happy with that either because it's not really who I am. I just, I was going through like the pendulum swing again, like, you know, you have to be sexy. No, I don't like that. No, you can't show anything else. I like, and it wasn't until I just started saying, you know what, I'm going to stop trying to fit into some imaginary mold and just be who I am. I'm, I'm from Santa Monica, California. Uh, I'm Nita. I've, I have naturally blonde hair. I dress how I dress. I act how I act. I talk how I talk. I listen to super shreddy music. And I also listen to Backstreet Boys and that's, <laughs> and that's who I am. And once I just started having fun with who I authentically was and didn't try to fit into some kind of other box, that's when I started really getting successful. And I think people pick up on authenticity. People understand authenticity and they can see when you're being something that you're not, you know, you look at these old coffin case modeling pictures of me. I look uncomfortable as hell, you know, like, and then, you know. Authentically you, uncomfortable. Exactly. That should be the album title right there. <laughs> <laughs> but then you look at me in this oversized, you know, baggy clothes and like, that's not really me either. And so once I just started saying like, I'm just going to be who I am and I kind of like who I am, then I realized other people could kind of like who I was too. And I, you know, I would go around and I'm, I'm always smiling on stage. I'm always having fun. I'm always trying to pull people into that moment instead of trying to be overly tough or overly sexy or overly anything. Like I just, I just am. And I think once you can just be in that moment and be authentically yourself, that's when people start gravitating toward it and you get to just, that's how you, that's how you build that brand. The Nita brand is really just me being me. You know, I think bands also go through this sort of self-mental warfare. I'll speak about heavy bands because that's, I know how they think, you know, there's lots of heavy bands that will get in their own way because they will focus so much on being technical enough or heavy enough for other people to accept them rather than just doing what it is that comes naturally to them and being themselves. And I have seen the careers of some very uh, promising bands just get shot to shit because they started on this awesome trajectory and then they got scared of the bands they were touring with and just felt like they had to out tech them, out brutal them, out this, out that. And, stopped making music that was authentically them and shit just backfired. Like there's only so long that you can make 
music or have a stage presence from that perspective, in my opinion, of trying to do stuff to please other people. Because the authenticity, I feel like the audience sniffs it like a drug dog. Oh, yeah. Like they, they just know. Yeah, it's a losing strategy to try to be anything but yourself. Yeah, and it'll and it won't satisfy anybody in the audience and it'll make you really unhappy. <laughs> like Yeah. So it doesn't work. It only, you know, you, you have to and and maybe find the most palatable parts of yourself. You know, you don't necessarily have to well, put yeah. your whole self out there. No. But no, you of course know, not. <laughs> but to to sort of really um give people and especially kind of all goes back to the social media idea, give people this insight into who you really are and what you love and what makes you tick and what inspires you as an artist and hopefully that will inspire more people in turn it reminds me of a thing i a quote or uh something from an interview that with a uh, ryan gosling actually the actor i'm paraphrasing but he said all my characters are me difference between them is that depending on the character i turn up or i turn down the parts of myself that fit or don't fit Love that. that's all it is so i'm just turning up certain parts of myself or turning down other parts of myself, but they're all me. I kind of interpret what you said about not showing all of yourself is kind of like that is, uh, is people don't need to be in on everything and nor do I think that they want to be. Oh, they want to be. <laughs> they think they do. But like, for instance, I don't think that a fan of a guitar player wants to see what it is that they really suck at. Yeah. I don't think that uh, fans of BB King want to wanted to watch him try to play an Ingve song or something. <laughs> I, I would, but yes, uh, maybe. But <laughs> but that's not why people went to see him. No, no, I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. Yeah, although I would like to see that. Yeah, it, maybe a bad example, <laughs> but you're not looking to see what your heroes fucking suck at or are really uncomfortable with. I mean, some people who are like really into something might want to see that just for their own research. But I think overall the fan base isn't interested in seeing every single thing. They don't want to hear like the 98 versions of a song that didn't make it generally. I will throw one thing out there though, because I agree with you completely. I have a, a Patreon page that I've been doing the last year and a half or so. And I've been sharing a lot of the recording process of this album and the songwriting and all this kind of thing. And something I have found really interesting is they like, I don't want to say like when I make mistakes, but like sometimes uh, I posted a video a while ago where I was working on a, a verse for one of the instrumental songs and the instrumental stuff is just shred all the way through. And the verses I kind of cut loose because it doesn't have to be any repeating parts. And I said, Hey guys, here's a video of how I write a verse. And I just loop the track and I loop record for sometimes like five or 10 minutes without stopping. I didn't put them through 10 minutes of it on the video, but, and, uh, and I just improvise and then I start repeating a phrase here and then I start playing the beginning the same way. And then I start playing the end the mm -hmm. same way until I sort of get it. And I put this video up where they were hearing mistakes and they were hearing me come up with stuff and see me roll my eyes, go, no, that doesn't work. And da, da, da. And, and they loved it. They sort of gravitated toward that and, and not in a mean way, like, oh, you make mistakes too, you know, but it was, it was like, it was almost, it seemed encouraging in a way, because I think we all think of other guitar players as superhuman that don't make mistakes. And for them to say, wow, you, you hit some 
off notes there. And that's cool that you showed us that, that even, Absolutely. even you do this, you know, even me, I hit raw notes all the time, but like, you know, it's, it was, it was an interesting thing because that's the sort of thing I would normally never show to anybody. It's why I got into engineering in the first place, because I like to record myself and not be on the pressure of the studio, mm-hmm. but to kind of put something out there, warts and all, and hear the feedback, like that was cool. We liked hearing the process, even though it wasn't perfect. That was a cool thing to hear. So I think that that actually goes with what I was saying. I actually think that that's part of that authenticity. You're being authentic by doing that. They're realizing that you're for real. Yeah. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this band Leprous or not. Mm-hmm. They're fucking good. Their drummer, I think, is one of the very best drummers in heavy music. He's so great. And he put out this playthrough a few years ago where he drops a stick in it and then just keeps going. And people love that because they're so expecting things to be fake that seeing him drop a stick is there. They realize, no, that this dude's the real thing. He's really that good. He is really that good. And he's human. Yeah. What I mean more is like, if someone goes to watch somebody's show or something like that, they're not going there to watch them learn how to play something that they don't, know how like they're not like say that totally say that carrie king doesn't know how to sight read you're not going to go to a slayer show to watch him try and sight read classical guitar (laughs) yeah i I was (laughs) gonna say we might be we might be entertained by it (laughs) yeah (laughs) but you know what i'm saying totally absolutely yeah i I would actually be entertained by it as much as you know like steve Vai is my hero that's the reason why i started playing guitar and i don't think i would really want to see behind the curtain for Steve Vai, you know, like, uh, I did the, the Nam jam for the, the Pia release of, of his signature guitar last year. And like when he was sound checking, like he was still incredible, you know, Vai is always up here, but I I felt like I was watching something I shouldn't watch. Like when he was fiddling with his tone and he couldn't Mm -hmm. hear something in the wedge. And I was like, I should go. Like, you know, like I didn't want to see behind the curtain, even though there was nothing to see. I, I watched the whole thing and he was incredible. But like, I sometimes I feel like you don't, I didn't myself personally, I didn't want to, I didn't want to hear anything. I wanted to just see Vi on the mountaintop and that was it. I wonder too, if it's just uh, something that's very specific also to this world of music, because the people who make this kind of music are also fans of this kind of music and the fans of this kind of music are oftentimes people who make this kind of music. And that's different than almost every other genre on earth. Most other genres, maybe electronic music has a community of creators, but vastly larger audience than creators, but heavy music specifically in a large part is created by fans and vice and the fans are creators and so i think that heavy music people have a little bit more of an interest in seeing how the sausage is made just because they're trying to make a sausage themselves basically you know i i never really thought about that but you're so right you know if you go to any metal show at any time everybody in there at least owns an instrument every pretty kid, much every kid in there at least on some level has, has picked up an instrument and played it. It would just not something you can say about going to nothing, taking nothing away from Taylor Swift fans, but you know, you can't look at a packed out Taylor Swift show and think everyone in here plays guitar. 
you know, that's no, a different world. It is. It, it really is. Yeah. I never quite thought of that. It's really interesting. Th- that's why when people, uh, are uh, try to give me really good business advice about making URM into something that is uh, multi-genre. I'm like, Nope. <laughs> we are sticking. We are sticking with this because this is the audience for sure. And you know, our audience is huge. And I yes, think a lot of, massive. you know, the mainstream, and I say mainstream non-metal people might not quite grasp how big it is. And, and I think I even didn't quite grasp how big until I started working on writing vocal songs because, you know, like I kind of knew like my heavy shred stuff was going to have a ceiling because not everybody wants to listen to instrumental music. And then I started looking at numbers that these bands are putting up, you know, and I'm not talking about, you know, the, the, the biggest bands, you know, the, a day to remember is like the, the, the giants, but I'm talking about sort of mid-level heavy bands, you know, not, not like, you know, of course someone like asking Alexandria is going to have massive numbers always, but you know, sort of mid-level heavy bands are in the tens of millions streams on songs mm-hmm. routinely, you know, like I, I heard that, uh, that I, I think it's, I prevail that song bow down, that song is heavy as fuck. I love that song. And I go and I looked at the Spotify and it has something like 83 million plays on this this song. And it's it's all growl. It's you know, it's got a, a clean, catchy chorus. It's all growling, heavy, you know, heavy vocals, heavy guitars. And I was like, wait, our stuff is doing this kind of numbers now? Like I didn't even know and I'm in it. <laughs> you know? It's surprising because I think when we I mean, we're different ages, but still, I feel like growing up, I think if you're above the age of 25 or above the age of 30, you experience metal being for outcasts. Absolutely. Yeah. Anyone above the age of 30 has that experience from high school um, or middle school or whatever of it being for the weirdos. And so it's hard for, we weren't around in the hair metal era. We were too young for that. And then we also... Or too old for it being more normalized, I guess. Like, because I don't think metal kids now in high schools are the outcasts at all. Right. So, where we come from, I think we grew up with it being outsider music, and so we always will have that that association with it. But it kind of isn't necessarily entirely outsider music anymore. It's just not the normal mainstream. It has this weird space all of its own and it never goes away which is part of what's great about it i love it so we have a few questions here from listeners is it cool we ask of course yeah i love that okay awesome so first one is uh from hayden mcleod which is a hey nita you seem to have a great stage presence and seem to be totally comfortable while you're up there what i wonder was besides knowing the songs you'll be playing is there any pre-show rituals or anything you do to help you get in the right mindset when performing in front of a crowd no matter the size yeah i think no matter the size is the operative word because i think sometimes people get caught up in it being you know a big crowd or a small crowd and one thing you guys may know or not know about me is I will give the exact same show to 50 people or to download festival. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. I will perform the same. I'll do the same size movements. I will run as much. I'll just take less steps from one side of the stage to the other. So I think number one is 
going into it with that mentality, going into it with that championship mindset, you know, you're, whether you're stepping on stage at rock and Rio or you're stepping on stage at your local dive bar, like you are going in there to give those people a show of their lives. You never know who's in there watching and you never know what opportunity there could be. Every single big opportunity in my life has come from some shit show that there happened to be somebody in the crowd that could recommend me or that I met that was a connection to the next thing. Okay. Like I need to know this because whenever Doth would play those horrible shows, (laughs) like those, there's five people here. I saw you guys at a lot of those. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like they weren't all dragon force tours a lot of them were fucking horrifically brutal it was really hard for me to fake that i was that i felt like an asshole piece of shit yeah loser (laughs) I i had a hard time getting over that well you know i get something i wouldn't say quite similar but you know i routinely go from touring with alice to touring with my solo music and, you know, it's not five or six people, but it is sometimes 150, 200 people. So like I'll come from, you know, 25,000 people and then play to 250 people, you know, a change in zeros on the end of the number. Mm-hmm. For me, it's really just about like, if there's 250 people there, I want them to feel like there's 250,000 people there, 250,000, 25,000 <laughs> or uh, 250,000, 250, you know, I, and maybe, yeah, 250,000, fuck it. Like I want them to feel like I'm giving them that show. And like, and if anything, I perform more stubbornly when it's less people. And like, I want those people that did show up that, you know, came out on their Tuesday night to come see me in Peoria, Illinois. Like I want those people to walk away going, damn, I'm so glad I didn't miss that show. Like I didn't want to come out on a Tuesday night and damn, I'm glad I went. So like kind of coming into it with that chip on your shoulder of like, I'm going to give these people the show of their lives and have them go around telling all their friends how they missed out on this show, no matter what, no matter how many people it is, no matter what time of day it is, no matter if I'm first of seven bands in a city I've never been to. And the only people in there are the bartender and the merch girls. Like I'm going to give the bartender and the merch girls the show of their fucking lives today. And that's it. And that's what I've always done. I've done that since I was a teenager. You know, my my first tour, we we won a series of Battle of the Bands to play on Warp Tour, but it was like a small side stage. You know, our stage literally folded out of the side of a semi. <laughs> and like we would go. That's kind of cool. This <laughs> is pretty rad. Hot though. Cool. You know, and I wouldn't say against other bands, but you know, we're on the same bill as Avenged Sevenfold and like, you know, these massive, massive bands. And it was up to us to come in there and go, all right, there's, you know, 60 bands playing today. Like, let's make sure everybody walks away talking about us. And I've just taken that with me for everything. And like, and that's what I've always done. So number one thing about psyching yourself up for any show is going into it with that champion mentality of like, this is going to be the best show these motherfuckers have seen all year, (laughs) if I have anything to say about it. And then as far as pre-show, it's funny because my pre-show is so boring. (laughs) Like, you know, I don't do any of that championship stuff before I actually get on stage. I don't drink anymore. I really just chill out. You know, I, I don't eat too close to the show. Like I like to be a little hungry by the time I get on stage. So 
I'll usually eat around four, like, you know, three or 4 PM. I'll have, I'll have lunch. And then, um, I'll just kind of chill. I do my makeup. I'll FaceTime Josh. You know, I watch something that I've seen before. Like I'm not watching something I have to pay attention to. Like I'll watch like Frasier or something just like so chill. I warm up, but I don't warm up like crazy, crazy warm up. I just improvise and like really just do whatever I can to just de-stress and not think too much about anything. Like Cause my whole goal when I'm walking to the stage is like, I know what I'm doing. There's nothing to be nervous about. There's nothing to worry about. I know these songs like the back of my hand. All I have to do is go out there and kick ass. And so if I'm thinking about other stuff, you know, if I'm thinking about like, oh, I, I need to do my tax stuff or I need to, you know, answer these emails, I need to do this other stuff, then I, I'm distracted from my championship mentality. So I just, I chill. I, you know, sometimes if I'm really being, really on point on my plan. I'll have like my BCAA drink before the show, or I'll have like half a protein shake and, uh, do like some sort of athletic type and then stretch. Of course, I'm always, uh, you're stretching, not just your hands and arms, but your neck, your legs, uh, shoulders and back and stuff, because performing on stage, if you're doing it right, it's pretty physical. So you should be warmed up as if you're going to go do a workout. Um, And then once you get onto the stage for me, like that's where the mentality kind of shifts. And that's when I sort of get into more of that, like athletic, like, all right, let's go, let's fucking go. And, and just once, as soon as the curtain drops or as soon as the intro track stops, then you just take off out of the gate and go kill it. Great answer. I can't imagine anything at that level saying, yeah, you can slack on the playing as long as you do a backflip or <laughs> vice versa. Yeah. I mean, I guess if they were going to put one first, it would, it would obviously be the music, but I think we are, we are all in that gig because we can balance the two. Totally. So Ginger says, I love playing guitar and creating fully produced songs by ear or feel, but want to improve as a guitar player. The problem is that I hate music theory, scales and learning songs. Am I hopeless? No, I think we all started out hating music theory. Like I, I definitely started out hating it. And, you know, me being the millennial of every group that I'm in, I learned theory from watching Frank Gambale modes, no more mystery. So like I, I had to be taught it too. I think if you stop thinking of theory, we've talked a lot in the last couple hours about constraints. And I think if you stop thinking of theory as a constraint and start thinking of it as a tool, it will really help you in not only your bettering your guitar playing, but also writing those cooler songs. Cause you'll start to understand how the notes can flow into each other in a different way. And that's just a way that you can't quite get without knowing those things. Like Marty Friedman has another, I, I learned from the DVDs, so I'm always referencing these DVDs, but um, Marty Friedman has a DVD called Exotic Metal Scales. And there's one point in that DVD where he plays a scale and he goes, this is just something I made up. Like I doesn't have a name. And of course it has a name. It's Lydian Phrygian dominant seven, nine, <laughs> whatever it is. But sometimes you have these strokes of genius where you just stumble on a theoretical thing that makes sense, but it's so much quicker if you don't have to stumble on it and you just learn the building blocks from A to Z. So I would say, don't think of it too much. And you know, I'm, I'm the most emotional musician out there, but don't think of it too much as having to color inside the lines and think of it more as expanding your palette to be able to find new lines to color. You know, the other day in the Riff Hard group, I saw someone post a, well, they made a post about how they wanted to write a really heavy riff, 
power chords underneath some melody or some progression or something and they were it was driving them mad because according to theory they didn't have certain notes as an option and my thoughts were well have you even tried it yeah like how do you know it doesn't sound good like have you even tried like before you decide that it's against the rules just come up with your idea absolutely and i think theory as an untrained musician is the most daunting thing. You know, I was, aside from the DVDs, I was totally self-taught. I didn't, I took my first guitar lesson when I got the Alice Cooper gig. So I had no basis for theory. And actually that was the, that was the impetus for creating my course. When I created Rock Guitar Fundamentals, my online course, I wanted to present all the stuff that I had learned in a really usable way for guitar players that didn't have a music background. I got Vi's book, Videology when it came out. And I was like, I was so excited to sit there and learn from Vi. And then I opened up the book and it was like reading another language. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't get it at all. It was so frustrating. And then I, I sent some pictures to my best friend who went to Berkeley and I said, what does this word mean? She's like, I don't know. <laughs> like, you know, it's like so far out of the frame of reference for most musicians, even someone at like a relatively high level like myself. So when I created my course, my whole goal was to present this kind of material as if I was teaching it to a friend that wanted to learn how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. And that's actually, even the URL is I want to play guitar.com. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> URL, by the way. Isn't it the best? I can't yeah, believe yeah. I got it. I, I saw I saw an ad for it a month or two ago and was like, that's a fucking good URL. Yeah, the best. <laughs> Yeah. So I looked through, I, we can get back to the questions in a second. I looked yeah. through the course today and uh, obviously, you know, I didn't have time to really get into it between when you sent me the login and now, but like what I did notice that I thought was cool is that it does speak to people at differing skill levels, which I think is really important with doing education. You need to speak to people where they're at. Totally. I wanted it to feel like if, if you guys watch my course, and I hope that some of you do, I wanted it to feel like if someone is picking up the guitar for the absolute first time, because it's scary, it's intimidating to, to try something new. And a lot of the lessons start out where we as guitar players think is point A, which is, uh, let's say, an open E chord. Like that's sort of like, if you think like, what's the most basic thing you talk, talk, teach someone? It's an E minor, open E minor chord. But actually, the first thing you should teach someone is how to hold the guitar and how to hold the pick and what the terminology is. So when I say put your hand on the neck, they know what the neck is and they know what the different knobs do. And these are called the pickups and this is where you plug it in. And this is, you know, like these are your fine tuners. These are your machine heads like and sort of going over really going over the terminology as if you're sitting down with a buddy who wants to play guitar and go, this is this is how you start. And then it goes through each, there's three modules, beginner, intermediate, advanced. And then it just sort of takes that friend through their whole journey of playing guitar. You have the open chords and you have the bar chords and you have the power chords, probably in inverted order. <laughs> and then you have your blues and then you have, you know, I, I did out and I think an hour and a half on modes in theory, like I taught it to death and I wanted to present it in a way that people could understand. And you don't need to read music or have a degree or understand anything about music to get the modes 
in, if they're presented right. And then from there, it goes into the fun stuff, the whammy tricks and two hand tapping and sweeps and all that fun stuff. The goal was for someone to pick up the guitar for the first time and then be able to play lead in a band or write songs or have fun with it. It was fun to do. I liked doing it. And there is a discount for Riff Hard members. There is. If you guys use the code RIFFHARD on IWantToPlayGuitar.com, it will get you half off the course, 50% off. You get lifetime access. Anything I add to the course after that, you'll get that as well. Um, so I'd love to have you guys check it out. It does look very well-rounded. So I noticed that one of the topics here is basic picking technique. One of the uh, questions from the audience from Aviatar Run is how much have you worked on proper picking technique and have you ever had to change the way you hold your pick to improve your playing? And also at Riff Hard, one of the big things that we push is the importance of the right hand. How without that, you kind of don't have shit. So I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what you cover in the course for right hand and then also just your personal take on getting better with rhythm work and uh, just your take on that side of playing, how it applies for you in two sentences or less. Yes. <laughs> Speaking to the course first, and then we can delve off into the tangents of everything else. Um, really what I covered in there is um, I wanted to get everyone through the basics of everything without getting so far off the rails that it felt intimidating. So mm -hmm. for what we have covered in rock guitar fundamentals, it's, you know, holding the pick, you know, how to, you know, hit the note. So you're not hitting the other strings at the same time. And then you've got, you know, down picking and up picking and alternate picking. And I think I pretty much capped it at that. I didn't get into the hybrid picking and economy picking and um, that kind of stuff, because at the end of the day, I really want it to be a fundamental course. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want to get into this thing where people were feeling bogged down by the minutiae of, you know, hitting down, down, up, up, down, down, up, up, you know, this like uh, the wildness that we all get crazy, crazy into as guitar players. You know, one thing uh, I'll just say that we do over at URM with our mixing courses, we have a, our upper level subscription is called URM Enhanced and we have uh, these series of courses called Fast Tracks and uh, each Fast Track is about like a topic, like how to hear compression better or mm. reverb or tuning vocals, whatever, gain staging. And there's certain things that we don't let you advance to without having gone through prerequisites. Like they can't do anything with having, without having gone through the gain staging fast track, for instance, because they will skip it. Like if you were to have put all that other stuff in there, they'll find a way to skip the, uh, the basics, especially beginners will do that shit. And basically handicap themselves. Oh, absolutely. I did it as a young guitar player completely. Didn't we all? <laughs> yes. Which is why I actually had to take my first guitar lessons of my entire life when I got the call to join Alice's band, because as you guys know, my audition was disastrous and I almost outplayed myself out of a great gig. And Bob Ezrin called me up and woke me up. He called me up at seven o'clock in the morning. And he said, look, if you get a chance, if we give you the opportunity to be in Alice's band, can you become a rock guitar player in time? He said, Alice doesn't need a shredder. He needs a rock guitar player. Can you become this in time? This is about two weeks before the Motley Crue tour started. And I said, absolutely. I, I know I can do it. 
and he said, good. And then he hung up on me <laughs> and, um, <laughs> go and back then, to sleep. <laughs> exactly. I looked at my phone, it was seven Oh two. And I was like, did Bob Ezrin just call me up and tell me I'm not a rock guitar player. <laughs> <laughs> and then later that day I got the email with my start date and you know, my flights and all that stuff to start the Alice tour. And the, the email subject said, Nita, welcome to our nightmare, which I thought was very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then I realized I had no idea what he meant when he said, be a rock guitar player. I had, you know, 14 days to figure it out. And so I started calling around. I found a great guitar teacher um, named Bill LaFleur, who was um, one of the head guys over at GIT for a long time. And I went over and I started, I took a few lessons and I was like, what the fuck am I doing wrong? <laughs> like I can play so many notes. <laughs> like, And he, you know, and that's where I first started understanding the concept of leaving space and, you know, really utilizing sort of those minor pentatonic classic rock licks, you know, which I just never learned because I was listening to metal, you know, like I didn't get into guitar playing, listening to Kiss and ACDC. I got into guitar playing, listening to At the Gates and Symphony X and Dream Theater and, you know, and In Flames. So, you know, I'm learning these inverted, you know, Swedish sounding chords instead of learning 12 bar blues. So I had to go back and learn the 12 bar blues and learn, you know, the, the sort of more classic sounding licks in, and fill in those holes. So I think it is so, so important. I love that you have sort of stages you have to complete before you get to that next stage. Cause God, I wish I had done that. I wouldn't have had to take my first guitar lesson of my whole life at like 27 years old. The basics. The basics. There's a reason for why the best coaches like the best coaches in basketball, for instance, will f make their team focus on fundamentals. Yeah. For instance, there there's a really, really good reason for that. Okay. And I guess then with Eviatar Ron's question is how much have you worked on proper picking technique and have you ever had to change the way you hold your pick to improve your playing? I haven't changed the way I hold my pick. I think I would if I needed to. I, I think what I do works for me. Um, I haven't... I, I wouldn't say that I've worked on it as much as I've worked on like probably like my legato or like the sort of the stuff mm -hmm. that I think we all have a tendency to focus a little more on what we like doing. And like, I'm a, I'm a left hand type of player, but I've, I mean, I've, I've worked on my picking technique certainly, but not to the point where I go, oh, well, I have to choke up, a, you know, two centimeters more in order to get this kind of thing. I, I, I haven't really gotten so deep into it like that. All right. Question from Johan Vestman. What Iron Maiden riff or song was the most tricky or alien for you to learn? You know what's weird? I do actually have an answer for this one, and it's and it's a funny one because I love that Johan, you phrased it as which one was tricky or alien because usually people say which one's the hardest, and they're they're not hard. The Maiden songs, like it's you know the the challenge for the Maiden songs generally is to play them like the record because people go to Iron Maiden shows or Iron Maiden tribute shows to hear Iron Maiden songs played right. So for me, that was the challenge. But there is one solo that just always boggled my head. And, and it's not because it's particularly fast or complicated. I just could never get my brain around it. And it's uh, Caught Somewhere in Time. Uh, the Dave Murray solo of Caught Somewhere in Time, for some reason, always just threw me. His note choices made very little sense to me. <laughs> and uh, that's the one I always got tripped up by. And I was always glad when it was over and we could move on to Fear of the Dark, which I loved. 
Last question. This one is from Michael Martin. Uh, what guitars did you play that influenced the design of your signature Ibanez? Or maybe a better question is, how did you come to make the decision for those specs? Yeah, um, I have been an Ibanez fan since day one. I've always loved Ibanez guitars. Um, just all of my heroes being Ibanez players by Satriani. John Petrucci, when I was watching Rock Discipline, still playing with the still playing the the Picasso Ibanez, Paul Gilbert, Andy Timmons, you know, like just all my shred heroes were Ibanez guys. And when I started playing Ibanez guitars, I was um I was playing RGs at the beginning because I just felt uh it had a little bit more as a sort of immature uh mindset of, of a young guitar player, I thought it had more body to it, had more wood you know, so I, I was like, this is going to give me a heavier tone. And that's what I started out using. And then when I started playing actually with Alice in uh, 2014, this was another Bob Ezrin note. He goes, he's, he called me up. He said, what's wrong with a Les Paul? I was like, oh God, <laughs> please, please no. <laughs> Nothing wrong with it. Just not, not for me. And so sort of to placate the situation, I switched over to an S series because it looks a little less metal. Like it's, you know, I switched a little more to classic, a little more classic. Exactly. Um, and I threw, you know, the same pickups, you know, the, the deactivator and the bridge and evolution in the neck, like it was still my same hot metal pickups, but just in a, what I thought would present, you know, I had this Amber burst S series and it sort of presented as like a little bit more of like a classic look guitar. And I just fell in love with the feeling of the S series. Uh, and I'd played an S for a while. I used to play uh, Herman's E-Gen a lot. And um, I, had, I had played some other S-series in the past. But once I started touring with it, with a couple different S-series, I just fell in love with the balance of the S-body. You know, if you, like, you won't be able to see it, but you guys can see it. I forgot we weren't recording video. But the balance of the S-body, if I balance my my signature guitar on at at the neck joint on the palm of my hand, it's perfectly balanced between the body and the neck. There's no dip one way or the other. And I just love having, I love having that on my shoulder on stage because I always know no matter what I do, the guitar is going to be right where I left it. And uh, it's thin, it's light, it's easy to play for hours and hours on end. And so that's why I chose that body style. And then in terms of the woods, um, I didn't, find another guitar that had my particular combination of tone woods that had the mahogany body, the ebony fretboard and the quilted maple top. And we didn't compromise on any of that on any model, even the junior model, even the affordable model has that ebony fretboard, because I think those tone woods are what give the Jiva that's that sort of signature sound, those three tone woods together. And then of course the, the DiMarzio pandemonium pickups, my signature pickups, we did nine iterations of that pickup before we got it right. We made two Jivas, two versions of the Jiva, and it was just a finish difference. And we did nine versions of the pickup to make sure that it just sounded exactly, exactly like I wanted, like really versatile, really hot metal pickup, um, but could be rolled off. It rolls off really, really nicely to be really clean um, without losing that beauty of the tone. So uh, overall, so much thought and love went into this design, into all three of them, the, the original Jiva 10 and then the, the new two, the Jiva Junior and Jiva X, that uh, they're just all my dream guitar. I got to build my dream guitar and now you guys get to play my dream guitar, which is so cool. That is really cool. 
that is doing exactly what you said. So yeah. So I, I yeah. again, I forgot. I forget we're not recording video. She was balancing it on her hand, like she said. <laughs> so for everyone out there listening, for everyone that can't see, it, yes. <laughs> which is everyone. So I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you guys so much. This is uh, this was so enjoyable for me. And it's not often that I do an interview where I learn so much in the process. I'm really grateful. So thank you both.